Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 34. Welcome back. Please follow our Facebook page, at Cunning of Geist, and on Twitter, also, at Cunning of Geist. The purpose of this podcast is to promote the idea that we have a mind and that our minds are free to create purposeful activity in this life. Now, in the current episode, we'll be covering Jung's Quaternity of Cognitive Functions and specifically how this relates to uh, George Gurdjieff and his horse-drawn carriage metaphor. And it's pretty interesting. And then we'll, of course, relate this all back to Hegel. So let's dive in. And we're going to start with, with Jung. Carl Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist who, along with Sigmund Freud, practically invented psychoanalytic psychology. He was born in 1875 and passed away in 1961. He was trained as a physician and he began working at a psychiatric hospital in Zurich. And there he came to the attention of Sigmund Freud. The two men started corresponding. They worked together. They traveled together. They traveled in the United States together for some time and, and, and collaborated and really formed the basis for psychoanalytic therapy. Freud, interestingly, saw the younger Jung as his successor in this new field. And it's kind of interesting. Freud, who was Jewish, believed that Jung, who was not Jewish, would make psychoanalysis more mainstream to the world and not be perceived as a Jewish science, which Freud was afraid that it might be conceived of. Freud's feeling that it might be conceived of as a Jewish science was because the field's early founders were all Jewish. So uh, it's also interesting that Freud himself referred to Jung as the Joshua, to my Moses, fated to enter the promised land, which I myself will not live to see. Although they certainly did not see eye to eye, Freud still considered Jung his protege for some time, dubbing him my successor and crown prince, even my spirit, the spirit of my spirit. However, Jung eventually decided to go his own way and break with Freud. It's a, a very famous breakup. And he comments on this in his memoir, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. And he, he says that Freud wanted Jung to embrace Freud's theories dogmatically. Like this is, this is like the religion and you must preach from this you know, from his handbook. And I'm going to quote Jung now from that book. He said, quote, when then Freud announced his intention of identifying theory and method and making them into some kind of dogma, I could no longer collaborate with him. There remained no choice for me but to withdraw, end quote. Now, the primary difference between Jung and Freud was in how they perceived and represented the unconscious part of our mind. Freud believed that the unconscious, or some called the subconscious mind, consisted solely of repressed emotions and desires. It was, uh, and it was these desires that caused um, neuroses in people. If people could not handle something in, in their conscious life, they would repress it. Now, it would not disappear. Whatever it was, it would stay buried in the unconscious part of the mind but it would find ways to come back and sort of attack the conscious mind, which would create neuroses. Now, Jung agreed with this up to a point. He called this what 
Freud's calling the unconscious. Jung called it the personal unconscious. But he also believed in something called the collective unconscious. And this is a very important point, and it distinguishes him from Freud and also puts him in line, in line with much of Hegel's thinking. He believed that there was a collective unconscious of entire peoples and even to all of humanity. Uh, I'm going to get into this in a moment, as well as how it corresponds to Hegel's notion of the world soul and the development of spirit throughout history. But first, Jung, uh, as I said, along with Freud, put psychoanalysis on the map. He, he coined the phrase complex, and along with the collective unconscious, he used his ideas of polarities, archetypes, and cognitive functions, personality type, individuation, and synchronicity, all in his therapeutic treatment. Now, we touched on synchronicity um, in a previous episode of The Cunning of Geist. That was episode 30 on the I Ching, Synchronicity, and Hegel. However, in this episode, I'm going to be dealing more with Jung's notion of cognitive functions, and, and in particular, how this relates to the development of personality. But I want to just step back as uh, as we're talking about Jung and talk about something that is comes up every once in a while. Was Jung anti-Semitic? This recently came up in the Hegel study group. We were talking about Jung's relation to Hegel, and it came up. And uh, so I wanted to, to to cover it here. First of all, there are many books and articles and papers written on this subject. I'm not going to list them all here. You can Google Jung anti-Semitism to see all that's been written. There's pro, con, and everything in between. And I've done a fair amount of research on this myself, and here's what I've found. I'll be brief here. Yes, you can find some speeches Jung made in the early 1930s that uh, compared the Jewish soul to the Germanic soul in in a not-so-favorable light. Uh, He said things like the Germanic soul had more promise. Yes, this is anti-Semitic, and I'm not trying to excuse it, uh, but it's important to realize that in Europe at that time, um, in the early 20th century, many leading figures uh, said similar statements that look very bad by today's standards. Now, I did an entire podcast episode on race, racism, and the dark side of the Enlightenment. So if you're interested in this, uh, please check out episode 32. However, Getting back to Jung, what's important here is that his views decidedly changed uh, to be negative on on the Nazis in 1936, like so many others, when he saw what what their intentions were, when it was clear what they were about. And this is very well documented. And um, if there were any sympathies that he may have had to the Nazi party before 1936, they are unclear at best. You cannot draw a firm conclusion. So... Having said that, let's now move on. I mentioned his concept of the collective unconscious. Jung coined this phrase, and it's a very important distinguishing characteristic of his work. Now, just what is it? What is the collective unconscious? Well, it's the notion that the that there are unconscious factors in one's psychology that go beyond your personal experience and memory. They can be inherited inherited from your parents and from your grandparents and so on all the way back. They come from one's family, from one's association, the media, and one's cultural groups. And Jung found that this collective unconscious contains certain key archetypes. 
There were archetypes such as the wise old man, the shadow, the trickster, the great mother, and many others. And these archetypes are in our unconscious mind, and they underpin and surround uh, our own personal uh, unconscious in the Freudian sense. And it was astounding. Jung found that these archetypes were so primitive that they, they were shared by, some of them were shared by all humanity. Others became more developed in certain cultures and society. Now, there's a famous term that's mostly associated with Hegel called zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And certainly the zeitgeist can be, can be considered part of the collective unconscious. As I said in a previous episode, a fish doesn't realize it's swimming in water until you take it out. And oftentimes we don't realize the zeitgeist that we're living in until it's passed. And that's, again, part of the unconscious mind that the Jung's talking about here, the, the collective unconscious. Now, let me uh, quote Jung directly on this, because I, I think he makes it very clear here. Quote, the existence of the collective unconscious means that individual consciousness is anything but a tabula rasa and is not immune to predetermining influences. On the contrary, it is in the highest degree influenced by inherited presuppositions, quite apart from the unavoidable influences exerted upon it by the environment. The collective unconscious comprises in itself the psychic life of our ancestors right back to the earliest beginnings. It is the matrix of all conscious psychic occurrences, and hence it exerts an influence that compromises the freedom of consciousness in the highest degree, since it is continually striving to lead all conscious processes back into the old paths, end quote. I'll quote him again from a, a different work, uh, quote, My thesis then is as follows. In addition to our immediate consciousness, which is of a thoroughly personal nature, and which we believe to be the only empirical psyche, even if we tack on the personal unconscious as an appendix, there exists a second psychic system of a collective, universal, and personal nature, which is identical in all individuals. This collective unconscious does not develop individually, but is inherited. It consists of pre-existent forms, the archetypes, which can only become conscious secondarily and which give definite form to certain psychic contents, end quote. So there you have it. Now, as I mentioned, this has a direct correspondence to Hegel's notion of Geist, um, in particular the world spirit, that there is a purposeful process that's going on here. And it's beyond our individual consciousness. We are part of something bigger and bolder that affects us, as moving us forward. And we also affect it in turn by our actions and our thoughts. Now, I want to move next to Jung's notion of personality type. And this he draws directly from how he sees cognitive functions and his use of polarities. Now, I want to go through each of his various cognitive function polarities. The first is introversion and extroversion. You know, we all know some people are more introverted, some people are more extroverted. Jung likened this to the difference between Apollo and Dionysus from Greek mythology. Apollo was introverted, seeking understanding uh, of the internal world, of reflection and of thought, where Dionysus was extroverted, seeking to join the activities of the world. Bottom line, introverts interpret the world subjectively, extroverts interpret the world objectively. Now, importantly, Jung saw these as a continuum, not an either-or dichotomy. People could be on the extreme side of one or the other, or be more in the middle. 
The next polarity of his is called rational versus irrational. Now, rational refers to judgment. Irrational refers to perception. Irrational does not mean something's wrong or crazy. It's just that it's an immediate perception that's not been analyzed either by the mind or by our emotions. It's not been filtered yet by judgment. Now, Jung saw judgment as being reflected in a further polarity, as I just mentioned, thinking versus feeling or emotions. And he saw perception reflected in a further polarity of sensation versus intuition. Um, sensations or perceptions, immediate perceptions that come from the outside. Intuitions are perceptions that bubble up from the inside. Again, they're not either or polarities, but a continuum. Now, the question comes up here regarding Hegel, and we discussed this in the Hegel study group on Facebook. Hegel was quite clear when he stated in his introduction to the science of logic, he said, quote, there is nothing, nothing in heaven or in nature or in mind or anywhere else which does not equally contain both immediacy and mediation, end quote. So the question is, is an immediate sense perception, say a flash of light or a loud sound, is this both immediate and mediated, as Hegel says? This is a very interesting question. Now, I believe that according to Hegel, even a sense perception, a flash of light, an unexpected sound, always contains both immediacy and mediation. And that's because the immediacy of the perception is accompanied by the mediation of comprehension. It's much like the present moment, the, the, the now. It's both immediate and it's a mediation between past and future. So say you're startled by the sound of thunder, but just at, at that instant, you are aware of yourself and what it is. They go hand in hand. However, that being said, there's still a lot to be gained by Jung's notion here of separating judgment from perception, separating thinking from feeling and sensation from intuition. Now, Jung proposed a very interesting way to look at these four functions. He, he proposed that they are, in fact, a uh, quaternity. It's a symbol, uh, a symbol of four, which he believed was a symbol of wholeness. Now, we'll do a little visual exercise here. Picture a cross with a horizontal line and a vertical line. Uh, it, so there'll be a north, south, east, west on this cross. At due north at the top, put intuition. At due south at the bottom, put sensation, the opposite of intuition. At the east pole on the right, put feelings and emotions. On the west pole on the left, put rationality, the opposite of the emotions. So now you've got the picture, okay? Now, we see that the north-south axis is the irrational dimension. It's the immediacy of either an intuitive impression or the, or the sense impression. Those are the two poles of that axis. Both are impressions, as I said. One comes from the inside, the other comes from the outside. Then you have the east-west dimension, the horizontal dimension. Uh, this is the rational dimension, with thinking on the one hand, on the one side, versus emotions on the other side. And this is often symbolized as the head versus the heart. Both are forms of judgment. One is a judgment from the head, the rational. The other is a judgment from the heart, the emotional. And they often come in, in, in conflict, as we know. And on top of this, Jung believed that each of these four functions that we've described here can be expressed introvertedly or extrovertedly, as we discussed previously. Now, you've got this quaternity, this map. Every individual can be placed somewhere on this 
in this map. And you can actually make it three-dimensional by adding the introvert and extrovert to it. So this is something that he used. It was a key part of his process of, of psychoanalysis. And uh, this test has been used and developed to, to come up with personality tests. And the most famous is the Myers-Briggs personality test. They, they use this system to, to develop 16 types based on the dimensions we've discussed. And you've probably heard people talk about their Myers-Briggs classification. Someone may say, I'm a INTJ, which means I'm an introvert, intuitive thinker, and judger. And Myers-Briggs personality testing has actually been used in major industries. Uh, a lot of companies test their employees using Myers-Briggs, and they do that so they'll get a better understanding of themselves, what makes them tick, and also they'll get a better feeling for someone else, the, their coworkers, how, what makes them tick. If one, per, if one person knows they're on the rational side and the person they're working with on their team is more on the emotional side, they can adjust for that. And this is all based on Jung's work. Now, there's another personality test that's gaining in popularity, and it's based on an esoteric symbol called the Enneagram. Uh, there's even a, an Enneagram Institute. And the Enneagram personality type is used today by some therapist. And the Enneagram is essentially a nine-point circle. There's a circle with nine points on it, and they draw lines connecting the various points. You can, you can look it up. And this symbol, interestingly, came from, originally, from the Russian esotericist George Gurdjieff. Now, we're going to talk about Gurdjieff a little bit here. We've talked about him before in episode 18, The Mystical Law of Three. We, we talked about his approach. And also in episode 19, In Search of the Miraculous, we discussed him. And he was a Russian philosopher, esotericist, and spiritual teacher. He had pupils... Uh, in both Europe and America. He wrote a few books, and he, this was all done in the first half of the 20th century. His basic message was that humans are asleep for much or all of their lives, and he provided exercises and teaching to help people, uh, and he called this growing a soul, if you will. And he, he called his project The Work, and many of the students to this day call it The Work. And this work was a unification of work on the body, on the emotions, and thought, our rationality, all together, not separately. And uh, he called this approach the fourth way, or the way of the sly man. So you hear often in Gurdjieff circles today, fourth way teaching, fourth way school, etc. So similar to Jung, you have a quaternity here. And I'm not going to focus so much on the Enneagram symbol of Gurdjieff, but I want to focus now on a metaphor that he used to describe the four parts of the human condition, his quaternity. And that's his metaphor of the horse-drawn carriage. Now, P.D. Uspensky, who was a pupil of Gurdjieff, um, summarizes this quite well in his book, In Search of the Miraculous. Now, I'm going to quote from this book, and this is, this is Uspensky here quoting Gurdjieff in the book. Quote, Man is a complex organization, he said, consisting of four parts, which may be connected or unconnected, or badly connected. The carriage is connected with the horse by shafts, the horse is connected with the driver by reins, and the driver is connected with the master by the master's voice. But the driver must hear and understand the master's voice. He must know how to drive, and the horse must be trained to obey the reins. As to the relation between the horse and the carriage, the horse must be properly harnessed. 
Thus, there are three connections between the four sections of his complex organization. If something is lacking in one of the connections, the organization cannot act as a single whole. The connections are therefore no less important than the actual bodies. Working on himself, man works simultaneously on the bodies and on the connections. Work on oneself must begin with the driver. The driver is the mind. In order to be able to hear the master's voice, the driver, first of all, must not be asleep and he must wake up. Then it may prove that the master speaks a language that the driver does not understand. The driver must learn this language. When he has learned it, he will understand the master. But concurrently with this, he must learn to drive the horse, to harness it to the carriage, to feed it and groom it, and to keep the carriage in order. Because what would be the use of his understanding the master if he is not in a position to do anything? The master tells him to go yonder, but he is unable to move because the horse has not been fed. It is not harnessed, and he does not know where the reins are. The horse is our emotions. The carriage is the body. The mind must learn to control the emotions. The emotions always pull the body after them. This is the order in which work on oneself must proceed. But observe again that work on the bodies, that is, on the driver, the horse, and the carriage is one thing, and work on the connections, that is, on the driver's understanding, which unites him with the master, or on the reins, which connect him with the horse, and on the shafts and the harness, which connect the horse to the carriage, is quite another thing, end quote. Again, the master he's referring to is the person that's sitting in the carriage. He's where the, the driver is supposed to be taking him somewhere. Um, so that's why this analogy works so well. There's a, a spirit, a master, a soul within the carriage who's supposed to be directing things. There's a driver who represents the mind um, who's supposed to listen to the master and then guide the horse, which is gu- guiding the emotions. So the emotions, the horse can then pull the carriage. And, and get where they want to go. So I, I find this metaphor very helpful in understanding cognitive functions and understanding psychology and human nature. And again, the, the master within the carriage is really the key to the whole thing. It's the spirit within. If you cannot hear the master, you do not know what the master is saying. And in fact, in today's world, many people don't even realize that there is a master inside the carriage, that there is a spirit within. Um, our society today is based almost entirely on the driver, and this driver is unaware that there's a master in the carriage to which he should uh, listen and, and follow where the master wants to lead. This is why oftentimes today we sense no purpose in life, and we've talked about this before in various episodes, uh, because we don't realize that there's a spirit within a soul that, that can, can, help, can help guide us. Um, the driver does not know where to go, and often just lets the horse, the emotions, go where they want to go without much direction. I'm going to summarize this, again, quoting Gurdjieff, quote, The body of a man with all its motor reflex manifestations corresponds simply to the carriage itself. All the functionings and manifestations of a feeling of a man correspond to the horse harnessed to the carriage and drawing it. The coachman sitting on the box and driving the horse correspond to what, in a man, people usually call consciousness or thought. And finally, the passenger sitting in the carriage and giving the orders to the coachman is what is called I. So, end quote. It's very interesting. Now, I found a similar metaphor in the Upanishads, interestingly. This comes from the uh, Katha Upanishad 1.1.3. And rather than a coach, it uses a chariot as the metaphor. I quote, 
Know the Atman as the Lord of the chariot, the body as only the chariot. Know also intelligence as the driver. Know the minds as the reins. Now, this is the exact same metaphor as Gurdjieff's horse-drawn carriage. Atman is the spiritual essence of the person that corresponds to the, the, the person sitting in the carriage. The body is the chariot, the horses are the emotion, and the driver is the mind. So it's a very interesting uh, correspondence here. Adi Shankara, who we discussed in detail in episode 23 on non-duality, a look at the Advaita Vedanta, commented on this passage. He said, quote, Know the Atman to be the lord of the chariot. Know the body to be verily the chariot. Because like a chariot, the body is drawn by the senses, occupying the place of horses. So this is a very interesting uh, quaternity here, uh, a very interesting metaphor. Now, how does this all relate to Hegel? Now, Hegel never spoke of a horse-drawn carriage, to my knowledge, but he did speak of the difference between the body and the soul, and I think this is really germane to what we're talking about here. I'm going to quote Hegel from the Philosophy of Right. Quote, The conception and its existence are two sides, distinct yet united, like soul and body. The body is the same life as the soul, and yet the two can be named independently. A soul without a body would not be a living thing, and vice versa. Thus, the visible existence of the conception is its body, just as the body obeys the soul which produced it. So, end quote. Hegel here is acknowledging the existence of our soul. And this is analogous to the master within the carriage, the spirit within, and the Atman described in uh, the Upanishads. And as we've mentioned many times, we seem to be moving farther and farther away as a society from acknowledging the soul. You know, I'm old enough... I remember back in the 1960s, people would often say, that person has soul. And you sort of understood what that meant. There was even soul music, which I loved. Sam and Dave had a huge hit in 1967 called Soul Man. You don't hear that term used too much today. Now, let me just wrap this up by going back to the objective of this podcast, which I stated in the beginning. And we, we review it at the beginning of each episode. I, I state that we have a mind and that mind is free, which allows us a purpose in our lives. Now, this mind that I'm talking about, this mind with freedom and purpose, is a mind that knows it is a soul, that it has a soul, that it has the spirit within. A mind that does not recognize the spirit within is like the carriage driver that doesn't recognize it as a passenger inside the carriage. The driver's purpose is to understand where the passenger, the master within, where spirit wants it to go. In other words, what one's purpose in life is. Now, it's only when one recognizes the spirit within as a spiritual essence that one can become a true individual in the Jungian sense. This is the individuation process that Jung speaks about and, and that Gurdjieff urges through his teaching. By recognizing the spirit within, the Atman within, one can lead an integrated life, harmonizing the body, the emotions, the thought, to give direction in one's life in, in all realms of cognitive and behavioral functioning. Gurdjieff often referred to his work as the harmonious development of man, and this is similar to Jung's process of individuation. In, in, in Hegelian terms, the soul, this essence, as we said, is spirit, Geist. And Geist has a history. It has a collective memory, as Jung has shown. We're part of it. And we can call on, on Geist. We can call on this master within for direction. Uh, we can call on this greater whole, this collective unconscious for help as we forge ahead here in this life. So 
That's it for this episode. We've covered a lot. Hopefully you found it interesting. Thank you so much for listening. As you know, I will be listing all references, all specific references on the Facebook page for this podcast at Cunning of Geist. And please don't forget to tell your like-minded friends about this podcast. And that's it for, for this one. This is Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. See you next time.